night being the half moon night, come together to practice Dhamma, to chant, listen to Dhamma. The reason we practice Dhamma is because we're all, we all seeking something better than what we've got. Most of us were not born into Buddhist families or even brought up with the Buddhist teachings. We've encountered them later on in life. Through our good fortune, maybe met with teachers, read books, started to experiment with meditation, traveled to visit teachers and centers, and so on. But we're all looking for something better than what we've got, meaning we've already had some insight into the nature of our existence as humans. It's not completely peaceful and satisfactory. So we may have some faith and interest in what the Buddha taught. For myself, I always found the wisdom of the Buddha profoundly satisfying in whatever question I had about life or about how to free myself from suffering. The Buddha seemed to have an answer. Most of us come into the practice through that approach. Gain some confidence from the obvious wisdom apparent in the Buddha's teachings and also maybe having the good fortune to meet some living practitioners, teachers, living teachers that indicate that maybe this path isn't simply something that's intellectually satisfying and sounds good on paper, but it actually works for human beings to raise themselves up a bit from the more mundane experiences of pleasure and pain and the stresses of life can actually transcend that. And this is why we come to practice and we're looking for inner peace It's through penetrating the truth of the Dhamma that we gain more peace, or one day ultimate peace. And it's the nature of worldly Dhammas, Lokiya Dhammas, they can't be ultimately satisfying because they're still bound up with impermanence unsatisfactoriness, they don't, we can't own 
the world and the things of the world. They're not self. They're bound up with birth and death, arising and ceasing. We experience the world through these five candors. They are ultimately unsatisfying, unreliable. So now we're looking for something better, something more stable, something that's completely secure, safe from stress and suffering, the stress and suffering of the world. This is what the Dhamma seems to offer through what we've heard, what we've reasoned from our, for ourselves, through meeting others who practiced it, and then the longer we practice through our own experience, our own direct experience of the Dhamma, maybe we start to gain more confidence that it genuinely can bring us to something that's truly peaceful, a true, safe, secure refuge. It's something we have to keep returning to, keep reminding ourselves why we're practicing, as well as returning to the practice itself. Because it's the nature of the worldly dhammas there, seem to be almost impenetrable. We're surrounded by them, our culture, our background, our own thinking and attitudes and so on. This is why so many of the people in the world are, are lost and are experiencing a lot of suffering. They can't see beyond the worldly dhammas. They're caught up in the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain of life. And they maybe haven't had the good fortune to meet with a, a way out or see a way out yet. The whole nature of the Dhamma, the true Dhamma, is that it's something beyond the ups and downs of the worldly Dhammas. It's something that can bring the mind to complete peace, stability. But obviously we have to practice to achieve that, to attain that. We have to following the footsteps of the Buddha and the enlightened masters and penetrate these four noble truths and really come to understand them in their three phases, twelve aspects as we talk about and really comprehend dukkha comprehend dukkha understand what its cause is abandon the cause through cultivating the path and then really experience the cessation of dukkha for ourselves, directly for ourselves, to actually know, realize that experience for ourselves. So even just turning to the Dhamma, listening to Dhamma, thinking about it, refreshing our commitment to the practice. Often that has a very 
powerful effect on the mind in itself, even if we haven't yet developed any deep insights. You know, the nature of the Dhamma is peaceful, it's true. So it has a brightening effect on the mind. Whereas the nature of the worldly Dhammas, even the success of the worldly Dhammas, you know, it feeds more attachment, more craving, more ignorance. So it tends to dull the mind to the truth, blinds us to the truth. to keep working to practice to bring the mind back to the Dhamma pointed in the right direction so we have the monastery we have the form of a bhikkhu the lifestyle of a bhikkhu to help we have teachers to assist us but ultimately we also have to cultivate the Dhamma inside internally even with the best teachers they can't do it for us if you've ever lived with a teacher a very good teacher then you you know it's also quite difficult for a teacher to help us to develop insight and they can only point us in the way but we have to be the ones who reflect on the Dhamma, cultivate the ability to see and know the Dhamma. And then Man said one of his first realizations was when he realized he had enough psychic ability through his samadhi to actually know the hearts and minds of others around him when he was living in. Sarika came, there was another monk living nearby, an older monk. He spent all his time thinking about his family who he'd left to become a monk, and always planning what should happen to the family, the kids, the money, the property and so on. Couldn't let it go even though he'd ordained mentally, he was still completely stuck with his family. Ajahn thought he'd help him out one morning, came down and directly challenged him about how he'd spent the whole night thinking about his family. And the old man, the old monk, said he almost fainted. Everything Lumpur Man said was true, he knew. He wasn't hiding it, but it was so direct, he couldn't cope with it. He almost fainted and the next day he ran away from his little hermitage that he'd been living in. Said he couldn't live near Lumpurman anymore. Too ashamed and just too much to, to bear the teacher pointing out all his attachments and kalesas so clearly. And Jaman re realized, he said, even if you have metta for someone, if, you, if they're not ready, you point out their defilements, they just can't cope with it. Sometimes they get angry, sometimes they just get scared, run away. Obviously you live with a teacher, it's helpful. They can point us in the right direction, remind us of the practice, can be a good example. In the end we have to develop our own internal 
teaching ability, the ability to teach ourselves, to know ourselves. This is why mindfulness is so vital for the practice. You have the five indriya, it's at the center, the central quality that we develop. It's never wrong to develop more mindfulness, this quality of the knowing or the one who knows. It's always supported by Sampajanya, even though often in talks, teachers will just mention sati, mindfulness. But in practice it's always linked with and supported by Sampajanya, clear comprehension, clear knowing. Mindfulness is recollection, ability to keep something in mind. Clear comprehension is the, the understanding of that thing and what we're doing, our attitude and they develop, they, they de describe Sampajanya in four, four aspects. It's the knowing the purpose of what we're involved with. You know, in the goal, knowing the purpose, why are we doing something, or if it's a meditation object, knowing the purpose of that object, knowing the suitability, knowing the boundary, and knowing without delusion four kinds of clear comprehension. So developing this quality of the knowing is not just a kind of thing we do banging our head against the wall as it were. We're constantly guiding what we do with wisdom. Developing a clear comprehension at the same time. So how do we do that? Well, we start off by reflecting on what we're doing, thinking about it. We listen to the Dhamma and then we apply it on a daily basis. So it always starts with the most simple, obvious things like the use of the requisites, how we're spending our time, sort of the basic activities of a monk, keeping the precepts, keeping the Vinaya. This is where we develop sati and sampajanya on a daily basis. As you use your requisites, you use your bowl, you're reflecting, you know, why do I use this, how do I use it? We have rules guiding how we use it, how we look after it, how we store it. Just to bring up mindfulness and clear comprehension. How we eat, how we wear the robes and so on. As we go through our day, there'll be different mental experiences we have, different moods, feelings, experiences of pleasure and pain. So we bring up sati and sampajanya to bear onto those, 
to understand better what's going on in our experience, to know our experience in the present moment. Often when you talk to people about their practice, say, my practice is going like this, going like this, that, already they tend to be drifting off into mental proliferation you know, about, based on the past, or based on expectations. The practice itself is always about the present moment, coming back right here, right now. How you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're doing. And knowing that, bringing up mindfulness, clear comprehension in the present moment. And all the practices we do, the training we do, the Vinaya we keep, is supporting that. you're walking in the morning, you come up, get up. How do you get up? Are you bringing up mindfulness when you get up first thing in the morning? Clear comprehension, you know, the decisions you make as you get up, whether you're going to get up or whether you're going to roll over and sleep some more, how you get up, what you do when you get up, how you use your kuti. how you use your requisites, your robe, your bowl. If you're coming down to the meeting hall, then how do you do that? What attitude do you bring as you come to the meeting hall? Are you very fuzzy? Maybe if you're sleepy, then you're still fuzzy, just trying to wake up. Or maybe have a mood, maybe very excited or inspired to come and practice. Maybe very bored or fed up because the weather's not good or it's too early. That's where you practice, establishing mindfulness in the present moment, knowing what you're doing. Sometimes you question yourself, sometimes you just compose yourself, diligently establish mindfulness. And you consider, what, is it, what am I doing right now? What's the purpose? You know, Sampajanya considers what's the purpose of the different activities you're involved with? What's the purpose? What's the point? You remind yourself, you consider when you come to meditate, whether it's sitting or walking, whether you're on your own or you're in a group, you remind yourself, why am I doing this? You look at the attitude you bring to the meditation. What's the purpose? Developing mindfulness on a meditation object. If it's the breath, if it's Buddha, or any of the other meditation objects. You consider what's the purpose of this? Putting mindfulness onto an object. The suitability of that object. Sometimes we have to consider whether the meditation technique we're using is the appropriate one. If we're very stressed or agitated, maybe we need to do something that will calm us down, not something that will bring up more doubt, more worry or more aversion. If we're full of anger, we might have to develop metta. 
if we're full of lust, maybe metta will actually be counterproductive. Maybe we have to develop a super. Clear comprehension is like that. It's helping to guide our actions and our attitudes and our mental states as they're coming up. Clear comprehension helps to establish a boundary. So if you've decided on a meditation object, that's your boundary. So if you're following the breath, then you don't need to go outside of your boundary and start thinking about other things. Stay within your boundary. If you're contemplating impermanence, you will stay within the boundary of that contemplation. If you're contemplating your five candors, don't let your mind go out away from the five candors. If you're contemplating feeling, we'll stay with feeling. Contemplating the body, stay with body. Clear comprehension of non-delusion. Not letting the appearance of things delude one. We're learning to strengthen the mind and observe the way these five candors are, this human being we have here, the way it is, so that we can bring our mind in line with the Dhamma, and we can transcend our normal delusions and attachments. A non-delusion, we're looking at the five candors. When the mind is calm, there is mindfulness, clear comprehension present, and you can contemplate. Contemplate the five candors the way they are. In the most basic way, delusion arises. We don't see the inherent dukkha in the five candors because we're always moving. Even just in the course of one Dhamma talk, how many times do you move? Wriggle around. How quickly do we lose our mindfulness? How quickly do we move away from paying attention to the words that are being spoken, go off into our own little thought processes? That's going on all the time through the day, whether we're, anyone picks up on it or not. The movement, changing posture, movements of the mind feed delusion. We're no longer with the truth, the reality of things the way things are, we're off into our desires, attachments, opinions about life, about ourselves, no longer with just seeing, feeling as feeling, thought as thought, memory as memory. But we're lost, back, sometimes just literally back asleep again. We become drowsy. Sometimes we're asleep in our daydreams or our mental proliferation. The practice of developing sati sambhajanya is very much a waking up practice. This is why they call the Buddha the awakened one. The enlightened masters are people who have woken up to the way things are by observing continuously without delusion the way this body and this mind is. And they're training their heart, their jitta to know the way things are constantly. So there's no, no delusion, no ignorance conditioning the mind. 
they keep looking back at the five candors till they're thoroughly comprehended and known them. This is the way they are. They're unsatisfactory. They're constantly in a state of decline. They're exposed to pain, to change. They're unreliable. Yet the way of the worldly numbers is always to coming from the candors, basing our trust, putting our trust in the candors, hoping for happiness from the candors. We spend much of our life just seeking pleasure to distract ourselves, absorb into. But the more we study the candors, the more we come to realize even the most blissful, pleasurable sensations and experiences we can have are temporary and they're deluding. They're not ours. They just arise and pass away and we can't hold on to them. Nothing lasts. And obviously they're replaced by pain. So our reflection on the candles exposing this, showing this to us, that revealing the truth. Mm, just constantly pleasure and pain, happiness and suffering. As long as we identify with them, the focuses of identity, of, of attachment, then we keep getting deluded by this. Keep chasing pleasure and running away from pain. The mind is never settled, never satisfied. That's the experience of craving. Craving feeds more attachment to the candors, feeds more ignorance, and the whole cycle keeps repeating itself. As far as I can see, the only way out of it is to develop the path. You bring the mind closer to the Dhamma so it can see through this whole process where we identify and hold on to the candors, grasp at them. We start to release that grasping and accept them for the way they are. They're only that, just that much. And the pleasure and pain of the candors is just that much. through the practice of developing sati sampajanya investigating the truth and little by little the, the mind is coming to this un, new understanding that the candors are not worth grasping at because they're just bound up with dukkha they're unsatisfactory in their nature they're unreliable they're not a safe secure refuge Much more reliable is the mind that knows that. The knowing, the one who knows, this quality that we're training both in sila, in samadhi and panya. Obviously in the beginning of our practice then often the identification with the candles is very strong. So we often have quite strong, powerful emotional swings. Sometimes even leads us to want to break the precepts or break them, usually just through, in minor ways, speech, actions, carelessness. But sometimes very powerful emotion has come up, powerful lust, anger, jealousy, rage. So we have to rely on the Vinaya in the beginning. You know, we trust in the wisdom of the Buddha who gave us the Vinaya as a 
a way of training. We trust in Ajahn Chah, in the way he taught the Vinaya and the monastic practices he handed down to us. Sometimes we just have to trust in that and make a clear commitment not to transgress, not to go beyond the boundaries of the Vinaya. But it's worth it to keep, to keep the Vinaya because it gets easier. If we keep transgressing it, then obviously it gets easier to transgress. It gets harder to be composed and restrained in the Vinaya. But if we <coughs> put effort into keeping the Vinaya, it gets easier. And we appreciate the value of this boundary of protection. Even if sometimes it's painful, you rub against this boundary, as the mind, because of its emotions, its craving, wants to step outside the Vinaya. But gradually you appreciate it's helping you, keeping you out of trouble, protecting you. And the amount of times you rub against the, the cage, the boundary, it gets less. And the shock waves of hitting the cage is less. Maybe you never rub against the boundary at all after a while. You're quite composed and happy within the Vinaya. Obviously it's a refinement of the practice of Sati and Sampajanya, but over time we get used to being mindful, watching our actions, our speech, keeping them within the limits of the Vinaya. And it generates a whole new experience for the mind, the experience of a mind that's free from remorse, free from heavy karma, which is one kind of happiness in itself. Also it allows this refinement of Satisambhajanya and you develop meditation and then reflecting on the truth of these khandhas. You know, it can function and develop very well when we're keeping within the Vinaya. And the more at ease the mind is within the Vinaya, then it's easier just to look back at experience without getting involved with it, without getting caught into emotional turmoils, the ups and downs of life. We can have a more balanced and sobering look at things. We're not so intoxicated with our emotions and we're not creating too much karma with other people or the world around us. Then it's a matter of refining our awareness, really catching craving as it arises and recognizing craving as craving and working to abandon it and getting better at doing that, getting cleverer, sharper at letting go of our own cravings. That leads to the happiness of samadhi. The mind becomes more peaceful more easily it gets used to letting go of craving rather than always feeding it and following it. Obviously the ultimate goal is develop enough wisdom and insight to completely uproot the roots of craving and attachment. The ignorance, the asavas that underlie that.
And this practice is very much one of waking up, awakening to the truth. It's, you compare it to somebody waking from sleepy, drowsy state, or just sobering up from being drunk, or even somebody who's been in a crazed, psychotic state, calming down, being able to think straight again. It's that kind of experience. We're waking up to the reality, but even though the, the reality is that the five candors are dukkha, the experience of letting go is one of release, happiness, peace of mind. So that insight is not too disturbing or depressing, it's actually liberating. The mind doesn't have to chase after the candors anymore and invest so much self in them. It knows they're just impermanent, unreliable. And obviously, the more we practice, then the more we have to dedicate our efforts to preserving this ability to maintain, bring up and maintain mindfulness, clear comprehension. And this is what brightens the mind, keeps the mind peaceful. But we have to know the dangers as well. You know, the tendency to get caught up in things, to follow our craving, our negative emotions too much, too often. Then the mind goes back to sleep, back, falls back into delusion. So we always have to be on guard. As a bhikkhu, we have to be on guard, particularly about the opposite sex, not to get too intimate, too friendly, because it's so overwhelming to the mind, any kind of intimate relations. We have to be careful even just as we associate with other bhikkhus not to get too caught into our preferences, likes, dislikes. To be careful not to get too caught up into the world, the allure of, say, being a teacher or gaining things. It's because we still get people offer things sometimes. We can get caught up into looking for more requisites, more tickets, plane tickets to go places maybe. Get to think more like lay people, seeing what things we own and have, more possessions. Sometimes it's more subtle things. Having a bit of power or authority that comes through age, age and vases. Having more lay disciples, being a teacher, being having a sense of personal worth in our reputation and so on. All of these more subtle things we still have to look at because they, are, they have a danger to our practice of developing sati-sampajanya. Sometimes we just don't know that we're attached. In the beginning we're struggling more with the attachment to the, the, more, the things of the lay life that we used to when we first come into the monastery. Later the attachments change become more subtle, get attached to the requisites, 
to our personality as a monk, as a teacher. Maybe the skills we develop can be a subtle form of suffering and so on. There's always more to reflect on and look at. Sometimes as bhikkhus we get caught into the sense of, oh, I've been a bhikkhu this long, I don't need to do that anymore. So when it comes to responsibilities, jobs, different aspects of the Vinaya or the monastic life, sometimes when we knew we're willing to do things that we don't particularly like, then after a while we say, oh, I'll set that aside now, I'm more senior. We have to be careful what's motivating that. Our background as lay people is we all want to be independent. Don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Want to have the freedom to come and go, do what we want, when we want, how we want. Sometimes we find the Vinaya limiting or the monastic form limiting, especially if we've been around for a while. So we can get a subtle sense of dissatisfaction or just want to be, be sometimes we become a little bit stubborn or conceited, don't want anyone telling us what to do. If you can transcend that, Developing sati sambhajan, you can see through that. In the end, it, maybe it doesn't matter so much. Whether people telling you what to do or not, or there's obligations to the Vinaya or not. Ajahn Chah sometimes used to talk about the story of Ajahn Man, how he, even when he was 20 years as a monk, he spent a vasa with Ajahn Sao, his teacher. Still upatakt him, looked after all his needs, out of gratitude to him as a teacher. He even managed to teach him the Dhamma. He actually progressed further in his practice than Ajahn Sao at that time. Out of gratitude he taught him the Dhamma. Ajahn Chah himself, when he was about ten reigns, he spent his time in that monastery where three or four older bhikkhus. Because Ajahn Chah was energetic and well-trained, he did all the jobs, all the chores, let the old monks have an easy time, washed all the spittoons, cleaned the hall, did all the core work. Sometimes they were even grouchy and complaining about him, even though he's doing everything. He said, this is good for me. It's a good practice. Let go of some of my pride and conceit. So if we're really intent on complete liberation, there's no time limit on it. It's not like you get to be a senior monk and then you can take it easy and put your feet up. You never get to Nibbana that way. Obviously, our physically our bodies change. Maybe our lifestyle changes. 
but internally the practice of developing, maintaining sati sampajanya, reflecting on your own candors, reflecting on the kilesas and abandoning them, doesn't change at all. It maybe intensifies. Maybe as you get more senior as a monk, you have more responsibility. You have to work harder, both in your own internal practice and externally. But also you gain skills through the practice. You gain the skill of quietening your mind. And you gain insight. So maybe it doesn't matter so much. You can let go of these things. So as Ajahn Chah used to say, the place of practice is right here, right now. If you're ever in doubt, what shall I do in my practice? Bring up mindfulness right here, right now. What's going on in your mind? How do you feel? What posture are you in? What are you doing? Where are you going right now? Are you following craving right now, you're attaching right now, and you're maintaining mindfulness, clear comprehension right now. It's the Pachubana Dhamma. It's the only place we can really find liberation. And the only way you can really tr understand the true nature of attachment, how it forms. Attachment, identification with these candors is in the present moment. As we see it forming, then we see the suffering, we let go. This is why on the one prayer it's often so beneficial to practice later, sitting, walking, even if you feel tired. You're extending the period where you're bringing up mindfulness, putting effort into that, working with different feelings, Dukkha waiting, feelings of tiredness, or maybe a bit of pain in your knees or your back. Different emotional states, feeling bored, feeling restless, doubt. Why am I doing this? And so on. If you keep practicing through that for a few extra hours, often you can burn off a lot of karma and you see the impermanence of all these mind states that are often catching you out so, so easily. So you become a bit stronger for these kind of practices. So I encourage you all tonight, so one practice we can practice more, stay up a bit later than usual, put a bit more effort into your practice. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight.